Welcome to the Cascade Church Portland podcast. We're a church that works to be both safe to be and safe to grow through our commitment to intentionality, diversity, curiosity, prayer, and advocacy. Enjoy. We're going to talk about grief this morning and how grief functions uh, in our culture, uh, how it functions in our church systems, how because of those uh, systems and structures, both culturally and church-wide, how that influences our theology and how we view the Bible. We're going to look at uh, just a little bit of what's the neuroscience of grief, like what's happening in our brain. And then we're going to try and land at what's the intersection of all those things, theology, the church, society, and our brains, and how do those kind of work together. Now, as we do all of this, I'm sharing this as a pastor. So I have a master's of divinity. I'm not a counselor. I'm not a therapist. I am in counseling and therapy, and I think you should be too. Uh, And if you're like, no, I don't have stuff going on, oh, I I don't know that you understand. Um, (laughs) That's not really the, the, the whole point. That's not how therapy, it's not an auto mechanic. You don't just go when something's broken. It's where are the places that we're able to process freely. I like to use the imagery that, especially being a parent of young kids, the end of most days when I check my pockets, I'm like, what is all of this stuff? (laughs) Legos and wrappers and a very important pine cone? Like, how did I get all of these things? Life has a way, much like children, of just handing you things that you don't have time to deal with and so you put it in your pockets. Therapy is the place, either weekly or monthly, where you get to open up your pockets and say, oh, wow, look at all this stuff. And it's a safe and committed place for that. Especially with issues of grief, it's incredibly important. And I am not qualified to speak on any of those things. But I do think we need to talk about grief and we need to talk about loss as a a broader church community, and certainly in this, this church community. Because there's a lot of ways that theology and church systems and structures make the grief process much, much harder than it already is or it needs to be. So the first thing that we want to look at is what is kind of the the cultural, societal setting that we're in right now in kind of the Western world within the United States that kind of frames our experience. So kind of the dominant uh, cultural thing that we understand is capitalism. And capitalism or a works-based economy. Uh, And the reason why I say that is there's lots of things that could happen to us that our society would find a way to keep on going. But there's a few things that we would not come back from. We would not recover in our current society as it is. So uh, within the Western world, we've demonstrated that uh, huge catastrophic natural disasters can hit and we have the ability to overcome and to build and move past them some of which we've even created ourselves. But these things can happen, and we can bounce back from them. But if all of us, every citizen within the United States, for the next month said, I'm just not going to buy anything, it would collapse the entire system. The system that we're a part of requires us to buy stuff. We have to. And what's interesting in that thought exercise is the people that it would impact the first and at the greatest level would be the people at the, the closest to the poverty line, the people that are working the consumer jobs, that are working in, in customer relations and are at the front lines, those would likely be the first people to lose their jobs all the way up. 
So why I say that, and just so you know, I, I, this is not an indictment of capitalism. It's a system like any other system which has pros and cons. It just is. It's culturally impacted us. The reason why that's important to know is that within a capitalism or a works-based economy, your value is as a contributor to the work or the economy. Your ability to make and create money societally puts the greatest value on there. So to that end, your ability to healthily continue to contribute to the workforce is the most important thing. And I mean that societally. There's lots of people who don't work um, or aren't, aren't contributing kind of like they, you have a full-time job where you're receiving a paycheck and all that. But that doesn't mean that those people are unaffected by the society at large. So when you have people that are stay-at-home parents that say like, oh, I don't have a job, I'm a stay-at-home parent. Wait, what? Have any of you been a parent full-time? <laughs> that's a straight-up job. There's nothing about that that's like leisurely and relaxing. That's not vacation. But what are we saying? Societally, a job is what contributes to our economy and you make money from. And if I don't, then I'm not working. So how does that play into grief? If we put on capitalism or, or works-based economy lenses, what we see is anybody who's not able to work has no value. They're actually hurting the rest of us. And so when it comes to a physical injury that we can see, we can tolerate it for a time. Take the time you need to what? Get back to doing your job. At whatever level you need to. And hopefully you work a desk job where you can just keep right on working through that broken bone. But if you don't, fine, we'll give you a short period of time, but then you have to get back. Now, when it comes to grief, which is an unseen, you don't look at someone. Uh, I mean, certainly you can read body posture and, and all of that. But you, it, you don't view it in the same way you do a broken bone. That has a negative impact on us societally uh, in our economic system. So, within that system, a healthy person who has process through and is continuing to process through grief, um, and let's, I want to be careful about how I just use healthy, but people that are dealing with their grief in a way that allows them can, to continue working and performing at the same levels, and someone who is actively avoiding all of their grief so they can continue working at the same levels are the same thing in our society. We don't really care whether you are avoiding or you're processing. Are you able to do your job? is kind of the societal lens that we put on people. And so a lot of our talk about grief and the way we move through grief is a process that you could run through like a conveyor belt. And how do you move through that process as quickly and efficiently as possible so you don't miss a lot of time at work or being a contributing member of society? So uh, how many of you have heard of DABDA? Denial, anger, bargaining, um, depression and acceptance. Uh, I'm not saying that that's a wholly unhelpful model or a framework of kind of understanding some of the ways that grief can show up, but usually the way it's talked about is conveyor belt grief processing. And people are like, I was angry today. And it's like, oh good, uh, you've already moved to anger, so I hope you hit bargaining tomorrow. <laughs> chop, chop, we got stuff to do. And there's a way where we put these lens on people where it's not actually processing through what's going on or creating the space for that. It's getting back into the workforce. Now, 
Church and society and culture aren't two different things, but they are very much interrelated systems that are speaking to each other. So I did the thing that all good preachers do. I Googled, and I said, grief and the Bible. And do you want to know what everything that comes up for grief in the Bible is? It is 50 Bible verses for a grieving heart. It is some arbitrary number of verses for people who are in grief and grieving. And almost all of them before that says, verses to comfort someone who's grieving. So our response to grief, you can see influenced by culture and moving within the church and the way that we view the Bible, is the role of the Bible or our sacred text, this way that we understand the relationship between humanity and God, is a spiritual way of saying, how do you get over it? How do you feel better? How do you either avoid or process through it so you can kind of be back to yourself, whatever that looks like? Which again, if you're in grief right now or you've been through a process of grief, getting back to normal, what? Why would you want to do that? And what even is normal in the first place? The process of grief, as we're going to talk more about, is a product of love and having loved well. There is no getting back that we should even be aiming for. But rather, that this loss should be an integrated part of ourselves going forward. That we're aware that the world, encounter, we encounter loss. And that there are people that have been significant in our lives that are no longer here. And that can come through physical death, but it can also come from someone moving far away or having a break in your relationship. Those are similar levels of grief that we're dealing with when we talk about this. So if you clicked on this link, 50 Bible verses, this is what you would see. And I know you can't read all of it, uh, but this is what I think is interesting. Of the 11 verses that are list listed here, there are six different translations of the Bible uh, that are put on here. Um, and if you're not super familiar with the Bible, that's, that's great. What, what it means is we don't have the original Hebrew, we do, but the Hebrew and Greek text, we kind of piece back together. But the Bible wasn't written in English. So everything that we read and can comprehend by not doing the Hebrew and Greek has been translated. And there's lots of different translations, different teams of people have translated. You have some that are word-for-word um, -word translations, and then you have some that are like, that's too hard when you're working with a different culture in a different context. We want to take the idea of each of these. And then some of them are like, well, we did this work before, but my name's Eugene Peterson. Let's make it like, <laughs> let's read it today, and that's the message, um, which is another way of kind of doing that same thing. What's, and, and I'm not even trying to throw shade at using different Bible translations, but what that means, the only reason you would do this is because the concept you're going for for how to interpret Scripture didn't really work when I just used this translation all the way through. So if I was searching like, ah, that's not quite how I want it to, to say. Let's go to the other one. You're like, ah, there's the one. So six out of 11 are different which means that there's a way of engaging the Bible, but we're trying to communicate something. And if this translation doesn't help us get there, well, we'll just find another one. Or we'll use a kind of different one. It's one of the reasons why here at Cascade, all the scripture you'll see on the screen, we always use NIV. Not because the NIV is the best translation, whatever that would mean, but we just want to be consistent. Let's stay within this translation, kind of learn its rules, and sit with it. 
What this communicates is that we're trying to help give comfort to people that are grieving. How do we make them feel better? But what Scripture is actually saying, eh, it's not quite as important as what we want people to feel and how we want to communicate with them. Which isn't an entirely bad idea, but it is dangerous when we start viewing the Bible through that lens. And here's what I mean. As you go through these, so number one, the last enemy to be destroyed is death, 1 Corinthians. Huh. I mean, that's an interesting kind of if I'm grieving. And, and if you go and look at the context of this, we have in Corinthians, they're talking very much about Jesus and what is the role of Jesus in his death and his resurrection. And what is Jesus communicating to us about the power of death in our lives? And furthermore, uh, the writer of the New Testament wasn't trying to communicate that to you, 21st century Portland person. They were actually trying to communicate that to oppressed and marginalized early Christians in this very beginnings of the church back in Rome, which was this oppressive kind of militaristic society, that if you didn't believe and worship in these ways, you would be eliminated. So the whole understanding about what death is and that death is to be eliminated is a very different cultural understanding. And what's kind of the larger purpose of that? I doubt that when the writers of Corinthians were going, it's like, ah, I need something for a mug for someone who's lost a loved one. Um, not that we don't have verses and we have to apply it one-to-one and like, well, you can't apply that to your life because clearly they were talking about this thing. That's not what I'm trying to say. But it is dangerous to assume that everything in the Bible is written for you. And in fact, the way that we can most understand it in relationship to our lives is start with understanding what it would have meant to the people that it was originally written by and who it was written to. And when we understand it in that culture and context, now we can do some more of that work. But the way that we talk about grief in the Bible is basically to like pick and choose different versions in different ways and just say, here you go, feel better. The Bible is not a hallmark card, and yet that's kind of what it gets reduced down to within this framework of grief and the Bible. So here's what I want to do. I want to look at two of, of some of the most well-known, famous kind of biblical stories about grief, and let's look at them. Let's kind of see what they say. So if you have a Bible with you or a Bible app, I encourage you to pull that out because you can kind of follow along. And this is just an encouragement if you want to. My favorite thing to do whenever I'm in a church and someone's preaching on a passage, I like to read before it and after it to see like kind of more of what's going on. It won't all be up in the screen, but that's a good way to be like, hey, what's, what's kind of surrounding this? So we're going to start with Job. Job, uh, if you're kind of unfamiliar with the story, it's, a, it's an Old Testament, First Testament story about a man who suffered incredible losses. He lost all of his fortunes. He lost all of his children. He became covered with welts and sickness. Everything that could go wrong goes wrong for Job. And I want to look at Job 2, uh, verses 12 and 13. Uh, so Job is alone, and three friends come to join him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him, because they saw how great his suffering was. Now, if you're familiar with the rest of Job, 
this is the last time Job's friends get it right. Um, it's also their first moment they show up. But from here on out, they're, they're the worst. Um, but right now, what they're doing is amazing. And I'm not just saying, like, hey, they're great here. But the, the way that the text reads and the way that it keeps on hounding out these questions and repeated questions and the difference when later at the end of the, the book how Job and God are interacting and the differences there are pointing out how unhelpful all the conversations that they had, Job and Job's friends had. So what do you see here about grief and how it's portrayed in Scripture? The first thing that I think is interesting is you see what Job's friends do when they see their friends suffering. They don't, at a distance, say, oh, that looks like that could be infected. I am going to, at a distance, be like, hey, Job, I am so sorry. I'm going to Postmates you some chicken noodle soup, uh, maybe send you a card and some flowers. Um, yeah, bummer, buddy. That is rough. What Job's friends do first is that they are stepping into further and deeper relationship to fully identify with Job and his suffering. If you have ever been in grief and suffering, one of the most powerful things someone can do is just be with you in that place. Being in a space of grief is so isolating. And it's so confusing and so disorienting in so many ways that just to have someone with you and say, you're not crazy for feeling the way that you do. You're not crazy for processing the way you do. I just want to sit here with you in this is one of the most beautiful and helpful things. And so that they are weeping as well as Job is weeping. They are within this culture to tear your robes is a sign of grief. To sprinkle dust on your head is another kind of uh, ceremonial sign of grief. And to go sit with Job and say nothing. And the, the significance of the seven days and the seven nights is this number seven comes up a lot, specifically in the Old Testament, but all throughout the Bible, it's a sign of completeness. That there is like a wholeness to the amount of time they are willing to sit and say nothing. Just to be present to Job and his grief. Beautiful. And note, in kind of in, in comparison with what we were talking about, and like all the Google searches that come up, and like this is how you comfort. They didn't were like, "Hey, buddy, I found you a verse from Genesis, and um, this is what it says about the spot you're in right now." They don't say like, "Hey, buck up, Buttercup. You don't have to worry about it. God is good." You know. They didn't say, "I know this is tough, but your kids are in a better place." not experiencing any pain anymore. They're not like, hey, I know the thing to learn from it. It isn't here, but it's coming, you know? God works all things together for those who believe in him. They aren't doing that. And that's significant to note. The next thing I want to look at is John 11. Uh, this is one of the most famous verses in all the scripture because it's the shortest. <laughs> And if you were ever big into, like, memorize Bible verses, you're like, two words? Sweet. Uh, Jesus wept. So in John 11, the, the context for this is that Jesus is out and traveling. A friend of his, Lazarus, is incredibly sick. They send word to him, right? Because we're not at a place where you can quickly, like, through text message or phone call, communicate the severity of what's happening. So something's bad enough to send someone to Jesus on a two-day journey 
and then Jesus has to turn and come back the two days, you can see that a lot can happen in that time, and it does. When Jesus saw her weeping, and this is speaking of Mary and Martha, who were the sisters of Lazarus, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not the one who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? What's interesting about this story is depending on on your belief about Jesus and how much knowledge does Jesus have of what is about to happen. Can Jesus just see it all or is Jesus experiencing it at the same time as the rest of us or the people in the story? What's interesting to note is that Jesus at this point either is aware of the power and capacity he has to intervene in this or is aware that he will raise Lazarus from the dead. Do you see the significance in that context of Jesus weeping? That that demonstrates a presence and a connection with the people that are around him and the people he cares closely about to identify with them not to walk in and be like, hey, we don't need to cry. I'm here. It's me, JC. <laughs> like, I got this. We can take care of it. We don't got to do that. But rather, there's an identification with the suffering. There's an identification with the loss that is personal and felt and relational in that moment. That should tell us a lot about the nature of Jesus. And it should tell us a lot that that's not normally the framework we think of Jesus coming into our grief. That the interaction to Jesus or the divine into our grief is to miraculously intervene to fix it or to somehow make it better or to somehow speed up the process on the other side. But do we consider Jesus someone who is in the room with us, experiencing it with us, And when you think of the theological impact of that, it's huge. So much of the understanding about God or the divine that comes in in almost every single cultural uh, manifestation is that God's existence is to fix bad stuff. And if we're on the right side of this God, God will fix the bad stuff for us. If we're not, God will either create or allow the bad stuff to continue happening. But it is revolutionary that Jesus not only suffers and dies, but Jesus continues to identify and be present with the suffering of this world. What that means, especially in unjust systems, is that God is present in those and present with those who are suffering. That this is not God having left them or God punishing them which would have been the dominant thought. And even if we could intellectually say, that's not the dominant thought today, it's actually how we function. We function that those that suffer, well, they probably deserve to suffer, or they did something to do that, or they're just not handling it correctly. One of the things that I want to talk through, um, and especially when this gets back to the opening question, do you believe that other people are doing the best they can? And and this is going to kind of come into this next part of the story. If you're familiar with the the concept of projection, projection is basically that I have an understanding and experiences of the world and how I function and move in the world. And largely what we do if we're not aware of our own upbringing, the way that we view and engage with the world, is we take that mindset and decision-making framework and we just put it on everybody else. So how many of you ever watch like true crime documentaries? 
And if you're watching those early on and you don't know what happened and you see the person accused of the murder, all of a sudden we become like armchair body language experts and they're like, I don't know. They're not crying enough or they're crying too much. And that means they're guilty. What we're saying when we say that, and this is important to note, is from where I'm sitting right now and how I engage in the world, if I was in their position, this is how I would react. And because they're not reacting the way that I would react, I can therefore make a statement about their guilt or their innocence. And if you've watched those true crimes, what do we usually find out? You might be right. You might be wrong. There's actually no way to take our interaction with the world, place it on another person's interaction with the world, and draw any kind of meaningful conclusions from that. Because people's process of guilt and their experience of the world is widely different as people are in the world. And so this is a huge part of asking the question, do you think people are doing the best that they can? If you raised your hand for no, then largely what we are doing is saying, because of my understanding and interactions of the world, I wouldn't be doing that, so that is not the best they can do. I would be doing better than that if I was in that position. This is one way that I know it's not just how we project on each other. I think about how 6 a.m. Kurt projects upon 10 p.m. Kurt. 6 a.m. Kurt is my best self. I have plans. I have ideas about what I'm going to accomplish on the day, what I'm going to eat, and what I'm not going to eat. 10 p.m. Kurt, he's like, oh, we got some seven-layer dip up in this fridge. And I know I already had some dinner, but it's time to get in it. 6 a.m. Kurt is, what did you do? Why did you make those awful decisions? I feel terrible today. And today, 6 a.m. Kurt is sure that when I get to 10 p.m. Kurt, I will not make those same decisions. Spoiler alert, every time. Every time. Because 10 p.m. Kurt is making the best decisions that 10 p.m. Kurt can make. And if I really want 10 p.m. Kurt to make different decisions, I have to stop projecting what 6 a.m. Kurt would do, and I have to change the systems and structures around 10 p.m. Kurt so that he can be more successful. And when you think of the role of society and culture, family of origin, people's skills and tools that they've been given to cope with the world around them, they might be making decisions that are deeply painful to themselves and people around them chances are very high they're doing the very best that they can do given what they have and the systems that they're in. And shaming them or shaming yourself to just make different decisions without ever addressing the systems and the structures around that individual is just a good recipe for shame. And it's a good recipe for cutting off empathy and connection with other people and creating a judgment lens with which to view all the other people in the world. And do you see how the people that are viewing Jesus are doing this? What do they say? See how he loved him. They see Christ crying. See how he loved him. Now, the truth that is very much there is that grief is a result of love. We don't grieve things that we haven't loved. And that can be places, that can be things. If you look at how people process the passing of an animal or a pet, that's because there was a deep love and connection to that animal, 
to that member of the family. And so the truth there is very much that Jesus had loved. The projection of that is, I cry after things I've loved. So if Jesus is crying, then therefore Jesus loved. And the other people are saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. What's with the alligator tears, Jesus? If I had the powers you had, I never would have let Lazarus die in the first place. Which is taking your understanding, your view, and projecting it on somebody else. Quickly, I, I want to look here as we kind of see, so the, the kind of two takeaways is we see what does presence and identification look like? And what does it look like to be open to the thing that is happening, to the emotions that are happening in the death and loss of Lazarus, that Jesus is present enough to that, even if he has awareness that it will change later to weep and mourn the thing that is right there, to be connected enough to the relationship to be present. These are some of the things that we see in the scripture. What I want to look at really briefly is what do we see when we look at brain scans? When we look at brain scans, the top there is what happens when people are um, shown images of uh, someone they lost. And this particular study was looking at eight different widows. A more recent study, but certainly a small study, and they hooked them up to look at what areas of the brain were activated. What they have there, those kind of small areas, and then the one on the bottom is words, so pictures and words. What's interesting is you can see kind of the small areas of the brain that are lit up is because those were the only areas of the brain that were overlapped from person to person to person. What they found is there were certain parts of the brain that were usually dormant, certain parts of the brain that were usually lit up, but the ways in which each brain lit up was absolutely different. So neurobiologically, when you say, how do we process grief? The short answer would be differently. That it does not impact all of us in the same way at the same time. That the way we walk through that process, going back to projection, is really, really unhelpful. Because from a neurobiological standpoint, it's a different ballgame from person to person. And when we add in this next stage, if you've ever watched, um, like, Nat Geo, or you watch like the Animal Planet, and you see like the gazelles on the, the savanna, um, which I always really root for the gazelles, because like they're the plucky little underdog. Um, when you see them run, one of the things that's interesting is that a gazelle with a runny nose or like kind of bummed isn't having the best day. When the cheetah shows up, the gazelle shuts down all of those functions to survive. And so some of the things that they notice is like the stomach stops processing food. And every single resource is redirected to the systems which, which will keep that animal alive. So the heart starts beating rapidly, starts pumping blood to all the places. The muscles are firing because it is all about keeping the systems that are most important to survival alive and everything else shuts down. When you are in the grieving process, or you're in the midst of loss, or someone is dying around you, your body is functioning in similar ways. Your body is redirecting in you the things that can most keep you safe and keep you alive. And so what does that mean? What that means is that periods where things are kind of slower and lower, or you feel a renewed sense of safety, is that you can start to discover these repressed parts of grief. Have you ever heard someone else or have you ever felt like, 
why am I so racked with grief now? Everything's really calm and good around me. Like, why wasn't I experiencing all this grief when I was in the room with my grandfather or my grandmother or my mother or this loved person who was dying? Because your body was keeping you alive. And you aren't able to sit with those functions until maybe sometime later. And when you continue to have a capitalistic mindset that has to go through the conveyor belt and we keep on putting these labels on ourselves, like, but you should be over it. It happened so long ago. No! That's a direct denial of everything we know about how bodies and brains function and process grief. No! Grief is a long process and it's a different process. So projection on other people of what you would do in a non-grieving state or what you previously did in another grieving state does not serve you in any way, shape, and or form. Spiritually, personally, in any way. And so, what, what I want to kind of end with, come to a point. One, when we think about our own projections, that projection and grief ultimately blocks empathy. How do we become more and more aware of what we would do and how we would function and what we would do in other relationships? Own that so now that we can see it and set it aside. It has the most power to control the way that we connect and talk to other people if we've never identified what we would do in that situation. But once we've identified it, the most helpful thing that we can do, dare say the most Christian thing that we can do, is set it aside to see them, to see their process, to connect with them on how they're actually doing. The other thing, and this is important for anyone in this room that considers themselves a Christian or a Christ follower or whatever name you want to put on it, Grief is not the time to teach or correct theology. You might have lots of theology about heaven and hell and the afterlife and death. Keep it to yourself when someone is grieving. And again, see and meet them in that place. What do they need right now? We can have all kinds of conversations about that. Come have coffee with me. I love conversations about the theology of all these different areas. If you are grieving, I'm not going to have that conversation with you because it's not the place where we process through those things. I'll probably be silent. It's really hard for me. And we'll just sit and we'll just be and you get to share and process the things that are going on. But be careful, especially based on where you are spiritually and theologically today, when you engage with people that are at a different place and a different time in their life, don't work to correct or teach theology to them in that place. That's not the time and place for it. The most theological thing you can do is to be quiet and to be present. And the last thing is when you think of yourself, a lot of us do a good job of creating the grace and freedom to other people when they're going through grief. And we're like, of course you're late. Of course things aren't functioning the way they normally function. You're grieving. You had this traumatic loss. You had this thing happen in your life. Can you apply that advice that you would give to a trusted, beloved friend to yourself? Usually we're way better at giving grace and permission to other people to have their own grieving process than we're ever willing to give ourselves. Can we extend it to ourselves? Can we say, this is okay for right now because I'm in the midst of grief? 
the hope for this morning is that as people that are seeking after understanding who is God and how is Christ moving and working in the world today, that we are people of greater empathy and less projection. We are people of more silence and less theological ideas and concepts about how the world works. That we are present and loving for ourselves and for all the people around us. And we're aware that it happens on different timescales and schedules for every single person. And that's a beauty that God made us with such incredible diversity. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you that grief exists. God, as painful and inconvenient as it can be in our own life, God, it is proof that there was love. Proof that we were present, that we showed up to our own lives to receive love and give love to others. God, I pray that we would welcome grief as a gift. And God, we would be present to what grief has to teach us. And God, we would be willing to step into that in countercultural and countersystemic ways. To say that there's something more significant going on here than our productivity or moving or progressing through things. That God will likely cycle again and again unless we can be present to our grief. And God, may we give ourselves the grace that you have given us to know that grief happens differently for each one of us and runs on different schedules. God, I pray that we would be a community to see grief in others and grant it permission. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.